This episode is brought to you by Graybar. Graybar is a trusted and leading North American distributor of electrical, communications, data networking, and industrial products that supports projects of any industry. Construction, hospitals, industrial plants, schooling, and more. Yep, Graybar does that. Graybar operates with one clear mission, to serve as the vital link in the supply chain, adding value for customers and suppliers with innovative solutions and services. But here's what makes them different from the competition. Being able to effectively navigate supply chains to get products on-site and on-time is crucial these days. And Graybar's nationwide logistics network, with over 290 locations across the country, assists owners and professionals build and maintain the operations in their electrical, communications, and industrial world by providing them what they need, when and where they need it, and within budget. Yep, Graybar does that. To view more information on their services, head to graybar.com. That's G-R-A-Y-B-A-R dot com. Yep, Graybar does that. This episode is brought to you by Modern Mammals at ModernMammals.com, where you get 10% off when you use the code GOLFSMARTER. Now, if you were to ask me what my greatest asset was, you may be surprised that I wouldn't take more than a blink of an eye to tell you that it was my hair. Every barber I've had in my life raves about my hair, and even today, I get jealous comments because I still have a full head of healthy hair. Well, that's why I'm so happy that we have Modern Mammals showing their support for the Golf Smarter community. Modern Mammals' goal is to keep your hair and head natural. That means they don't distort your pH balance and natural oils like normal shampoos would. And unlike shampoos, the products from Modern Mammals don't have harsh detergents that suds up and dry out your hair and head. And unlike conditioners, they don't leave your hair limp and frizzy. Instead, they lightly clean your hair and scalp, cleansing hair while protecting its strength and texture. And their products are designed to make your hair feel thicker. So go to ModernMammals.com and use the code GOLFSMARTER. It's one word, GOLFSMARTER, for 10% off. That's ModernMammals.com. And use that GOLFSMARTER checkout code for 10% so they know that we sent you. And there's a link in our show notes to go directly to the Golf Smarter landing page. ModernMammals.com. Some brands offer you low finance or cashback or servicing. Renault don't do ors. We do ands. The Renault Kajar with 1.91% APR and €1,000 cashback and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finance is made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required subject to lending criteria. See Renault.ie. Golf Smarter number 635. World Golf Hall of Famer Tony Jacklin on his new courtroom slash golf thriller novel, Bad Lies. This is Golf Smarter. Sharing stories, tips, and insights from great golf minds to help you lower your score and raise your golf IQ. Here's your host, Fred Green. 
We're going to start our conversation with Tony, but before we do, the author of the book, the, the person whose brainchild this book was, was Shelby Astro, and we'll get to you and the story in a minute. So welcome to the Golf Smarter Podcast, Shelby. Thanks, Fred. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. And your co-author on this amazing book, Tony Jacklin. Tony, thank you so much, and welcome to the Golf Smarter Podcast. You're very welcome, Fred. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Um, Tony, you have an amazing resume. You have multiple wins on, on the on the tour. Uh, you've won majors. You were captain of the Ryder Cup. Um, Forty two years they have you listed as playing professional golf, competitive golf for forty two years. That's remarkable. Well, beyond that, it's it's more than that. Actually, I don't know where he got that in from. But I turned pro in nineteen sixty two. And uh, I, I, I qualified in the Open Championship in 1963. And since that uh, 1963, it's been my life. You know, I, I was <laughs> full-time on the tour beyond that. And, and over that amount of time, how many wins do you have on these professional tours? Well, over 30 worldwide uh, wins. You know, I, was, uh, I played a lot internationally. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, Australia, around the world. And uh, some of those wins uh, came uh, in, in Europe. Um, obviously, it was on the back of actually my win uh, in the 69 Open Championship, and then I won the 70 US Open. I had them both together for a month. On the back of those wins, the European Tour really got got started uh, in the early 70s and that's when I went back to help it on its way as it were I was uh, I was playing here since uh, 67 in America got my card then but in 72 I decided to uh, go back to Europe and uh, help uh, help the European tour get uh, get get its start do you like to travel <laughs> you seem, you it, seem it, to it, have been doing it for a long time. <laughs> it, well, if, you've, if you're a pro golfer and you don't like to travel, you've got big problems. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you, you've got to, uh, essentially, you've got to follow the money. And, uh, you, you know, I went, I, I had a, a, quite a hectic schedule because uh, during the late 60s and early 70s, I, I didn't have a, a base here. Uh, and I, it meant, back and forth over the Atlantic uh, six or seven times a year. And then at the end of each year, we'd go to Japan and play and then the Australian Open, go down there. So it was, you know, it was a, it, a lot of travel. Uh, you know, you cranked up a lot of miles, no doubt about that. There are so many young people seem to be playing and succeeding on the tour these days. Um, when, when you know a child is good at golf and they they're recognized to have great potential, what is it that people don't know about life on the PGA Tour that you would tell a young person if they were saying, "I want to be on the tour just like you"? What kind of what would you tell them? It's like, well, here's what you don't know about the tour. Well, yeah, no, it's. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's, it sounds romantic. I know talking about it. And of course, when they watch on television, they just see you waving coming down the last hole when you're victorious. Which is uh, there's there's a lot more losses than there are wins out there. And uh, 
really you go back to the fact that if you don't like to travel, if you're a sort of homebody, uh, you know, you're not going to settle into, you've got to, you've got to have the ability to feel at home wherever you are. And, uh, it, it's, it's a, a part of it that, uh, I, I was very comfortable with. It didn't really, uh, bother me the travel. In fact, the travel in all truth was, was the, one of the greatest, well, it was the best education I ever had. You know, I found myself as a young man, I left school at 15. Uh, you know, I wasn't the brightest uh, or sharpest knife in the drawer, but traveling around the world and playing golf with CEOs of big corporations and presidents of companies, you, you sucked it all, all up and, uh, it was a wonderful education uh, for me. And, uh, you know, uh, without golf, I don't know where I, I would have been. It was uh, just a, a marvelous time altogether uh, to be able to see the world and uh, multiple times. Would you advise uh, your children or grandchildren to go into professional golf? Well, I have uh, I, I have two sons who are professional golfers. One is a, a club pro. He's in Germany now. He lives in Germany, Warren. He's in his 40s. But my youngest son, Sean, is uh, 26, and he's aspiring to get on the tour. He's playing many tours now, and uh, he's keen to succeed. Of course, uh, you know, the, the, the monetary prizes today are so huge. It's a completely different world financially. Uh, today than it was when I set out. Uh, we were always running after money, but uh, these fellas, if they're successful, uh, get on the tour and stay on the tour for a year, they're million, uh, millionaires. It's, uh, so it's, uh, it's a very highly competitive thing, getting out there and getting on the tour. It's, uh, it's not easy. A lot of young people see the amazing uh, rewards. And uh, so it's, it's, enormously competitive but uh you know i, I sean uh, my my youngest one i i encourage him he, he's very determined he wants to do it it's what he does best there's no doubt about that and uh we help him all we can so um it, it's funny because i asked the question would you advise them to do it you're telling me that two your sons are both uh, playing golf professionally teaching and touring did they ask your advice and you said yes, or did they or they did they just say ignore what you've been telling them the whole life? It's like this is not that easy. Well, you know, they, they they soon find out it's not easy. But <laughs> they're following their dream. They're following their dream is what they're doing. I mean, they both they in both cases they played golf since they were toddlers. And it's sort of in their blood, you know, they, they, they were always around uh, golf and golfers and golf courses, and it was the most natural thing for them to do. Uh, um, and they, they're both having a, an amazing life within the game in, in two different ways. My, Warren, my boy in Germany, he's, he's a teaching pro, he's got his academy there, and he, he immerses himself in, in that. Um, and, and Sean is, is a, you know, on the competitive side of it and um, beaten heads with uh, guys of like mind and uh, 
trying to find his way out there. It's, but it's what he wants to do, and it's what he does better than anything else. Well, then I guess he should go in that direction. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, as I say, I encourage him while I can, but, uh, um, you know, it's... Uh, does he ask it's, your it's advice? tougher now. I'm sorry? Does Sean ask your advice? Oh, all the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I mean I'm, I'm his sort of mentor, I guess. And I taught him to play, and he does, you know, we, we work together on, on his game from time to time. Not that he needs a lot of help. He's very talented. But uh, as I say, it's, it's enormously competitive now, and, and a couple of putts going in around make a, a world of difference. Uh, you don't have to be a good putter. You have to be a great putter. To, to compete out there today, it's uh, it's just the way it is. And, of course, he's traveling all over America trying to Monday qualify for the Web.com tour, sometimes for the main tour. And uh, he, he had his card on the South American tour for a couple of years. He's going to try to get on the Canadian PGA tour this year. Uh, it's a battle. It's uh, But, you know, he's, he's determined and we're 100% behind him. You have some remarkable accomplishments, uh, winning uh, an Open Championship, winning a U.S. Open, being inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Uh, just recently at the Masters on the, uh, on the Wednesday when the family's out in the par three, and uh, uh, Jack Nicklaus's grandson hit a hole-in-one, and he said that was probably number one on his list of, of great things in his golf life. What to you stands out as probably uh, the thing that you're most proud of in your golf professional golf career? Well, I've been I've been very fortunate looking back. I, I mean, you know, to win the two major championships, two opens back to back. I mean, have them, I had them both on my mantelpiece at once uh, for about a month back in 1970. Uh, you know, that was, I was enormously proud of that. And then beyond that, I captained the European uh, Ryder Cup team four times. And it was during that, that period in the 80s where we really got competitive. And uh, I, I won't bore you with the long, the long story, but, but in 83, the first time I did it, we lost by a single point, point in America. And then we won for the first time in 28 years in 85, and I did it the second time. And then in 87, we won at Muirfield Village when Jack was captain. That was the first win on American soil in history of the matches. And then we tied in 89, uh, and because of the tie, we retained it. And uh, so I was I was very proud of that, and, and it was a different kind of pride to you know winning and being a competitor as it were i couldn't have captained a Ryder cup at uh, 25 years old when i won my opens uh, so it was a, a case uh, the Ryder cup captaincy was very much a case of team management um you're a psychologist as well as as a, as a captain and you know you're working to get 12 guys in the best shape they can mentally and uh, you're observing all kinds of things their body language and giving them pep talks all the time completely a completely different thing so when when we uh, when we were victorious uh, it, it was an enormous uh, relief and 
but it was a team thing. It was about the camaraderie that uh, we experienced together as a team. Uh, you know, it's it's tough to it's tough to beat that. So I feel like, you know, I've had two sort of separate careers, if you like. One was uh, as a player. I played in seven Ryder Cups uh, prior to captaining the four times. But um, it was a, a different challenge. Uh, there, were di- there was a big difference in the challenge. As I say, I couldn't have captaincies as a young man. I didn't have the wisdom for it. But mm. uh, um, there was a lot of satisfaction in in being able to uh, see those guys uh, victorious. It was uh, it was a great time in my life. You say you didn't have the mind for it. Are you surprised to see so many young people having such great success on the tour these days? Well, I think you know. I, I think the, the whole thing is you know it's when you're young uh, that the, the time to do it. You're resilient. You know, I and mean, there's no saying. I think when you're young, you're the actor, and, and as you progress through life, you become the director. And uh, you know, you can't you can't do it the other way around. So we we've seen we've got so much talent out there, whether it's uh, Jordan Spieth or young Ram, the Spaniard, he's 23 and 24 years of age. It's a it's a wonderful time. They're fearless and. Uh, that's the time to get it done, no doubt about it. And when you were growing up, it wasn't uh, the kind of competition, at least you weren't aware of the kind of competition that there is today because of you didn't have television, you didn't have every single weekend golf on television and, and, and news about the tournaments and getting so much information about these players today. When did you uh, recognize that you had the ability, that you had the talent, um, to be a professional golfer. At what age did you know that you had something there? I was I was about sixteen. I was a, a one handicap, uh, virtually a scratch golfer, and I I won my county open championship. That was against all the professionals in the county, although it was only in England. And, I, and all I wanted to do was, was be a professional golfer. And uh, but in those days, of course, it it meant um, leaving home and being an assistant to a professional at a club. So I went down to from Northern England to live in uh, in North London, became an assistant pro, but didn't didn't much care for looking after the pro shop and, and giving lessons. Uh, I was I was uh, I, I wanted to be out there uh, competitive. And as I say, I played in my first open championship as a 19 year old. And uh, played four rounds and made uh, 15 pounds, I think it was, in prize money in 1963. <laughs> uh, but I never looked back. I, I managed mm-hmm. to just scrape through, and uh, I was I was full time uh, on the road uh, playing tournament golf, and uh, it meant leaving again, uh, going away in the winter to get out of the uh, snow and ice in. Uh, in England, and uh, I went down to South Africa early on, and then ultimately went out to the Far East in the winter, played all over Asia. Um, as I say, uh, beyond anything else, it was an, an enormous uh, education for me. It was uh, it was a fantastic time. I was having an adventure that was uh, unique. Yeah, I bet. I bet. 
So of all the amazing things that you've seen, all these spectacular things that you've witnessed and been a part of, are, is there a story that you're reminded of that you go back and say, okay, that was the weirdest thing that ever happened to me while I was playing golf? Oh, well, <laughs> I've had a lot of, uh, <laughs> uh, I think it was, I think, I think it's the people that you, you, you come across that stick, you know, that, uh, the characters that you meet across the world. You know, I've, I've been fortunate to play golf with the likes of Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra back in the day and, and knew all those movie stars and, to 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 learn that they're just human beings like we are, but and bad golfers like there. we are, <laughs> and, and and lousy golfers too. <laughs> but uh, you know, they're the things that really really stick. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, the, the people that you meet, the, the the wonderful experiences. You know, I got to go to Buckingham Palace umpteen times, mm. uh, meeting the Queen and all the rest of it, and. It's those things that uh, you look back and think it was a privilege to be able to 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 do all that. Um, uh, you know, not everybody has a a life that affords them those opportunities, and um, I'm very grateful f- uh, to the game of golf because of it. And um, I, I think it's uh, you know all my children play my grandchildren I've, I've got 14 grandchildren now Congratulations. It's, it's a marvelous game for young people it's a disciplinarian you know that you, that you have to be disciplined and organized and orderly um it's it's just a great game all around and uh, the fact that i can play golf with my grandchildren uh you know it's a game of a lifetime there's there's nothing like it so uh, it, i feel privileged as i say to to have had uh, golf as, as my profession. And now you have a new title. You're a co-author of, a, of a, a novel that includes golf and trial <laughs> lawyers, which you got me you know, at the very beginning. And Shelby, we're going to bring you in. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about the book, Bad Lies. Tony, have you ever thought about being involved in a a fictional book? No, absolutely not until I met uh, Shelby Yestro. I I hadn't, and uh, it's been an intriguing experience, I can tell you. I met met Shelby at the uh, Ryder Cup at Hazeltine uh, 18 months or so ago, nearly two years ago now, and... uh, he, he, beyond that, we, we hit it off immediately. And uh, but beyond that, uh, he had this sort of outline of a of, of a book that he wanted to to do, and I I was intrigued by it. I must say, I, I got sucked into it straight away. It was uh, <laughs> it's been a fantastic experience. It really has. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And Shelby, thank you for for yes. your patience. What was it no, that made no. you decide I need to get I need to get somebody with professional golf experience to to be well, involved I, in this story? <laughs> it's a good question. It's my fourth book, third novel. Oh yeah, and I wanted to talk to you about I, the other ones too, but we'll get to the yeah. <laughs> look at them later. Well, the one thing I learned from a one of the country's best novelists, Scott Turow, is don't write about things if you don't know about them. And um, I do know a little bit about golf. I've been an amateur golfer my whole life, but. Uh, 
my career certainly is nothing compared to Tony's. I, my big win was the club, cha- the senior club championship, and that's because I was the only one who could get around 18 holes without taking a nap. <laughs> but, but um, very good. But I, I wanted to, uh, in my outline and in my rough scribblings, there was an authenticity that seemed to be lacking from the uh, from the golf point of view. Mm. Uh, the story involves a professional golfer at the top of his game on the Champions Tour, whose life starts to crumble when a magazine article comes out alleging that he uses performance-enhancing drugs and cheats. And um, to get into his head, I had to understand what it's like being out on the tour and competing and and, uh, socializing with your competitors at night and how you deal with adversity, how the wives deal, how the caddies deal with all these things. And... um, I was blind in that area, and when I met Tony, just the idea got into my head that I, I have to somehow ring him into this thing, and uh, I waited until I had a little more going, and then we talked uh, almost two years ago, and it's been a, a real roller coaster since then. Um, and he's added so much to the book, I can't even begin to tell you how. Uh, he changed it from black and white to Technicolor. <laughs> I bet he added a lot to yeah. it. And, yeah. and so how long yeah. have you been working on on the? Uh, I don't know. You know, like it's it's just coming out right now. The book is just being yeah. released right now. Yeah. Um, but how long have you been working on this book? Well, interestingly, I started playing around with it years ago, and then I put it in a drawer, and uh, wrote two books since, and. Uh, I was, I've been retired for 20 years, and I had started this, I think, before then. Uh, so it's hard <laughs> to say when people say, how long did it take you to write that book? You know, it's a quarter of a century. Right. But, I, um, but actually, uh, the, that was the tip of the iceberg. Um, most of everything is since I met Tony the last couple of years. I see. That's when I went into high gear. We we went in high gear, and you were a successful law attorney. Um, well, I like to think that. Yeah. yeah, well, you had some pretty high profile gigs, <laughs> to yeah. say the least. Yeah, I did. Well, I was with one of the best corporations in the world, for, McDonald's, for twenty some years. Yeah, it was Amazing. just fabulous to be the chief legal officer at a place like that. And how much time did you spend in the courtroom? As I mean, what was your well, specialty in law? Well, before I went there, I was forty two when I went to the company. And I was what you'd call a general practitioner in a relatively small town and uh, did quite a bit of trial work litigation okay. uh, and everything else that goes with it, like real estate partnerships and all that. And um, when I went to McDonald's, I went in as chief counsel of litigation. I did not become the general counsel, the chief legal officer for till two or three years after that. So I was hired as a litigator. And I was one of the few general counsels of major companies who have been in courtrooms. And um, I found it um, not only valuable, but fun for me to work with the outside lawyers we hired uh, to, you know, try cases together, sit in the courtroom, work out the strategies. And uh, to me, trial work, uh, litigation is what the law is all about. you can draw contracts and negotiate mergers, but the rubber meets the road when there's a dispute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you get before that guy in the robe. 
you so. um it, it's I find it I find it so interesting. I just actually I just received the book yesterday. I've been waiting for it for like three or four days. It just arrived yesterday, so I didn't uh-huh. get too deep into it. But you definitely had me in there, and I really love the idea of how you have the the judge explaining to the jury the difference between libel and slander. And yeah. I yeah. started seeing it's like, well, that's interesting because if it's what uh, uh, libel is if it's spoken and slant do i have this back no, the other way around yeah slander is slander spoken, spoken libel, is, libel is, print. is print and yet yeah. that doesn't i don't where does broadcasting come into play between well, those interesting. two the laws of course i'm going to distinctions that go back to you know the the 10th century yeah but in the in the last several decades with television and radio um the broadcasted, the uttered word over the network um, can easily be treated as libel, mm-hmm. uh, which is a printed word, because the distinction is based on permanence. Okay. See, if I were to say something defamatory about you, and I said it in words, uh, as soon as I said them, they disappear in a thin air. There's no permanence. If I write in a book something defamatory about you, it sits on that page forever for people to read. And that's why the law has always treated libel as a more serious offense. And um, there could even be criminal libel. And nowadays with broadcasts, there are records of everything. I mean, you can just turn on the news today and you'll see, you know, clips of the president, things he said a year ago. And that's because everything is recorded so it has the same permanence of a writing, mm-hmm. and therefore mm-hmm. it has the same damage as a permanent written word. Isn't it amazing? I mean, here you are, you've been working on this book for years and years, and yet it is so relevant right now where there are accusations made and it can ruin somebody's career, whether it's true or not. And I don't know how well, this story yeah. turns out, and I'm not going to ask you to, to give me a spoiler no. alert here. But it's amazing that right now, in today's world, well, well, that's that's right. It's a, it's a hundred percent topical, and um, I tell friends, you don't have to have ever picked up a golf club to enjoy this book, and you don't ever have to have been a lawyer. If you just turn on uh, the news one afternoon, <laughs> you'll understand what's going on because yeah. you see under the. Under the law, and I won't go into a dissertation here, but uh, if I lie about somebody, I have to pay the price. It's wrong. On the other hand, if it's a public figure, then there is a certain, um, you get a couple of get out of jail free cards. Uh, I can lie about a public figure unless it becomes what the law calls malicious. And that's too long for me to describe here or with a willful disregard of the facts. Read the book. So <laughs> so that's exactly right. I think that um, uh, this pro is kind of a public figure. So because of the First Amendment protections that we have in this country, uh, you've got to prove more than just a lie. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of my good friends is uh, probably the top libel lawyer in the United Kingdom. And uh, I had dinner with him two months ago. And he said, I don't know how you could practice libel law in the United States with that silly First Amendment. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and that's a debate that can go on for quite a while. Well, you know, my wife, yeah. she, my wife is the one that loves the doctor shows. 
I'm the one that loves the lawyer shows. And I'm even, you know, uh, I'm a Grisham fan, too. I mean, I, I get off on these kind of books. I like history books, too. But you had me between the lawyer part and golf. You had me at the, at the, at the cover. I was in. Yeah, well. Very well, excited you know, to read to, this book. Just to echo that, if I can, that was why I wanted to write this book. And I'm so happy Tony joined me in the journey because of the similarity of a trial and a golf tournament. And in fact, Tony wrote a preface in the book, how no matter how much you prepare for a golf tournament, or how much you prepare for a lawsuit, there's always the lucky bounce or the bad bounce. And um, that luck inevitably makes its, you know, rears its ugly head somewhere. Yeah, I wanted to and, ask, uh, I, I do, yeah. sorry for interrupting, but I did want to ask sure. Tony what you saw as the similarities between golf and the legal profession. Or trial lawyers. Well, well, I mean, a, a bad shot at the at the at the wrong time can affect the outcome of your round and, and ultimately a tournament. And similarly, in the courtroom, uh, a slip of the tongue—you uh, never know what a witness is going to say and, and reply to a question—and and it can uh, turn the whole thing around. I mean, so. There's there's a big similarity between the two. I mean, you you never know that that top lawyer goes into every case not knowing whether or not he's going to win. We go into a tournament not knowing whether we're going to win. We just play it as it comes, and often it's it's how well and how quickly you can recover that uh, you know that that affects the outcome as much as anything. But uh, there's tremendous similarities. Yeah, in fact, in fact, uh, in fact, I guess I could say this. Please? Jack Nicholas was kind enough to put a testimonial on the cover of our book. Yeah, and he makes the same observation uh, after reading it that uh, he said. I think his words were that. Well, I can read it I, if you don't mind. I'd be yeah, happy the, to read the it. The courtroom, like the golf course, is a yeah. good place to expose the real truth about people. Right. Yeah. That's so so uh, fascinating. But, yeah, and, yeah. There's always. That's why courtroom cases are make for good novels or mm-hmm. movies. There's there's a winner and a loser, you know, <laughs> and um, it's black and white it, it, by the time it's over, and uh, and people like that. They they don't want to walk out saying what happened next, you know. Tony, so, do you see yourself in the uh, main character here at all? In Eddie Benison, do you see yourself in him, or did you put yourself in him at all? No, but I, I, I didn't see myself. I've, I've been fortunate to get through this whole uh, 50, last 50 odd years without uh, uh, too much uh, uh, of a problem off the golf course. But I sympathy. I had this. You didn't sit still I, long I had enough. sympathy, great sympathy for him uh, because, uh, you know, I'm quite an emotional individual. And um, in fact, that was. One of the things you know you have to deal with early on your emotions, and, uh, and uh, you, you know, for somebody who was as, as successful as uh, as Eddie was in the book, and and to to have uh, these accusations made uh, hit his sensitivities. It ch- changed his game. I mean, he, he you know he was all of a sudden uh, he, he had this burden of of, of uh, accusation over him 
and, and it uh, winning or being successful is a very fine line. And uh, well, you you see in the book, I, I it was a I was very sympathetic uh, to, uh, to to how he was was feeling. He had to defend himself, obviously, and, and hence the, the 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 court case. And uh, Shelby, I noticed that uh, the the main attorney that you have, uh, the defense attorney here, is quite a character. You set him up beautifully in the first couple of pages of the book. But then I, in, in doing a little more research on you, I see that another book that you wrote has the same attorney. I had so many um, people contact me after that last book about Charlie Mayfield. Yeah. Under oath, and, um, correct? That's the book? Yeah. And uh, boy, we hope we see him again. We meet him in another case again. And uh, it was particularly grateful because Charlie's Mayfield, Mayfield is, is modeled after a specific person who I tried my first case with. And um, really, I'll never forget him. And uh, clearly, and, uh, kind of a carmudgeon guy. He looks like him. And. Um, uh, but what I try to do, although it's it's a trial book, um, my corporate background, especially for a company like McDonald's, uh, gave us the ability to put a new dimension on this. And and what people don't know is that trials, there's so much that goes on other than in the courtroom. And it was important to us to point out what happens in the sponsor's offices while this do we cancel his contract or do we wait to see how the case comes out? <laughs> and, um, and what does the editor in chief's, uh, publisher think of him letting that story get past him? And, um, and so, and we go in the lawyer's offices and that's where these things are won or lost is, you know, outside of the presence of the jury. And, uh, having been in a corporation like McDonald's, which is involved in so many public things, you know, every move has to be considered in light of, you know, what will they say on CNN tonight <laughs> or the New York Times? Right. And um, and that's how the that's how the lawyers had to treat this case, because the courtroom was full of press people. Interesting. And um, and how they keep certain things out of it. So uh, when's the movie coming out? Well, that's, <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> Okay, so let's uh, pretend. Let's pretend for a moment that there is going to be a movie called Bad Lies because you've got the two uh-huh. elements that work so well for film, which is golf and trials. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I'm going to ask both of you individual questions here, and I'm going to start with you, Shelby. Who do you see playing Charlie Mayfield, the attorney? Or oh, who do, who's on uh, your wish list? <laughs> well, I, I kind of like, um, what's his name? Um, uh, Andy Griffin. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't even know if he's still alive. I don't know if he but, is either. But Matlock. You know, kind of, no, not Matlock. Well, he, he did play yeah. a lawyer. He died. Right. He died. Shelby. Oh, oh well. <laughs> there goes my movie. <laughs> or I'll still. And I still remember my favorite uh, trial movie of all time, "Witness for the Prosecution." Um, uh, with Coburn. You know they. I, I just James like Coburn. Kind of a fat guy with a lot of gray hair <laughs> who um, waddles around the courtroom in a kind of a shiny suit because too bad Burgess Meredith is gone too, right? He could be yeah, the penguin. And it's, such a, and it's such a contrast to the slick Wall Street lawyers with the tasseled shoes and the, you know, the 
the fancy ties. Um, but uh, that's part of Charlie's modus operandi, and that is he's he's every man to the juror, you know. Right, he's right. Every juror's uncle and and uh, and father, and uh, like he says in the book, I talk to their hearts, not their heads. Right. Right. And, he and has the trust Tony, in the eyes. Tony, which dead golfer do you see playing <laughs> Eddie Benison, or, <laughs> or, or or what actor? Oh, what actor you see playing what? in this this one? Oh God! I, and he's playing in a, he, Eddie is in a there. this but character. Eddie Benison a, is a Champions Tour player. He's not a young man, right? Yeah. Well, there's there's a preponderance of choice. You've got a big choice. I mean, I'm I'm not. Uh, I don't watch that many movies anymore, uh, but uh, I think I'm we sure should get John Daly. Out there that would uh, uh, get it done. Yeah, all right. It reminds me. It, it reminds me of uh, you know going back to, to the Ben Hogan story. Mm-hmm. Glenn Ford played uh, Ben Hogan in the film, but he quit golf after afterwards because Hogan was so difficult to deal with. He made him, you know, when it came to the golf shots. Uh, Glenn Ford couldn't quite do it as, as well as Hogan. And, uh, anyway, he frustrated the heck out of him, and uh, he quit golf after that. Glenn Ford did. <laughs> well, the book is published by Beast Sellers, and you can get more about it at badlies.net. The book is Bad Lies, A Story of Libel, Slander, and Professional Golf, co-authored by Shelby Astro and Tony Jacklin. Um, and it's available wherever you find your favorite ebook or hard copy. You can get a hard, you know, I've got the hard copy here and it, you know, it's not a little book. And so it goes into a lot of detail and I'm really excited to barrel through this one. Gentlemen, I really enjoyed it. Best of luck with the book. I think it's going to be a hit because again, it screams out movie. So (laughs) Shelby, good luck. Thank you very much, Fred. I appreciate this opportunity. Of course. And Tony, it's it's an honor to speak to you. Thank you so much for sharing some of your career with us and for being part of an interesting project. My pleasure. God bless you. Thank you. Maybe Tony and I can get you in the movie, Fred. How about that? I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I want to be the guy that knocks on the door and says, jury's back. Okay, that's that's Leon. Yeah, Leon. Leon the bailiff. Leon the bailiff. That's it. That's my life. I'm it. I'm signed up. I'm going to be Leon the bailiff. (laughs) This week on our Golf Smarter Academy, Ron from Virginia wants to get fit for new clubs, but he isn't sure that he trusts the data comprised when hitting into a net or, in his case, a carpeted wall. Tony Manzoni think. Hey Fred, this is uh, Ron from Northern Virginia. Quick question uh, regarding um, uh, indoor hitting and club fitting. Um, recently I'm a lot closer to a place called Golf Tech where they do indoor golf instruction and uh, fittings. And just wondering what you guys thought, what you thought and some of the pros you'd do about hitting a ball 20 feet into a big white carpet and that's all the feel you get for the ball traveling i kind of feel i'd rather go out to a driving range to do a fitting to really see where my ball ends up i just don't know how trustworthy it is just to hit it into a big curtain right in front of you and 
trust the computer or logarithm to do all the tracking and where it would actually end up and how far it would roll and everything. Uh, that's basically my question. I heard your question, Ron, and I'll do the, my best to answer. Uh, I, I'm like you. I, I like to see uh, where my ball lands and, and, and see it roll. Uh, but Golf Tech is a good company, and they do, they do a very good job. Um, it's just a matter of hitting into a net certainly isn't satisfactory for the hitter. Uh, and I'm not sure it records exactly how far you hit the ball. So if you're looking for, you know, distances and, and exact distances, you need to go out <clears throat> outdoors and, and, um, and find some way to chart that. That would be my advice. But, uh, again, uh, golf tech is a good company. Hope that helps. Ah, no music because there's more. Ron actually has a question for me. What do you got? I was out in your neck of the woods, San Francisco, a couple months ago, and I was out at Lincoln Park, and I think it's hole seven there. It's right on the bay. You can see the uh, Golden Gate Bridge to your left, and to your right is a very heavily trafficked road with pedestrians, bikers, tourists, everybody just walking along there on a nice day. And the foursome in front of us started hitting the ball to the right. And every, you could hear one hit off a car, one hit off the pavement, and then hit a car, and one just hit off the sidewalk. And I think the fourth guy actually got it in the fairway. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, I just got to take my time with this and not try to overswing and overhit it. And I'm, I was pretty confident I could hit it at least in the fairway. <laughs> sure enough. Right off the tee, that sucker went right to the right, and I just scrunched up and waited to hear something. Luckily, I it only hit pavement is all I heard. I didn't hear any crunch, any dings on cars or any pedestrian saying, ouch. Just uh, wondering if you were familiar with that course and that hole. I wish I would have called you when I was out there. You mentioned that uh, in a podcast later when I got back about calling you if, if you're ever out there. I should have called you. Maybe next time. Thanks for uh, all the info, Fred. Appreciate it. Bye. Ron, yeah, Lincoln Park is a unique but historical course in San Francisco. It's the oldest course that opened in 1902. And for people around the country, around the world, 1902 is really a long time ago for California. (laughs) But um, as golf, it was only a three-hole course when it opened in 1902. Uh, but as golf started to become more popular, the course quickly expanded to nine holes by 1909, which was just a few years after the massive earthquake that leveled the area. And by 1918, it was a full 18 holes. Now, a great number of golfers cut their teeth, famous golfers, cut their teeth at Lincoln Park, including the 1958 PGA champion Bob Rosberg, Johnny Miller, we all know as. Uh, uh, probably the most recognizable announcer on the PGA Tour today and winner of the 73 U.S. Open and the 76 Open. He grew up in San Francisco playing there. George Archer, the legendary putter who captured the 1969 Masters, owned his putting game at Lincoln Park on the old green, but now the newer one has been dedicated to his memory. Cool. Now, it's always been a short course, but the views throughout the course can be breathtaking. If it's not overcast and windy, but on a, on a clear day, especially at the seventh hole, you, can see, you get a view of downtown San Francisco 
all the way out to Mount Diablo over in the East Bay. I mean, you'll get, throughout this course, you'll get views of the ocean, the Golden Gate Bridge, downtown San Francisco, um, Marin County, Mount Tamalpais, Mount Diablo. It's really amazing the amount of views that you get. Um, so, but, but the photo opportunity, and I, and I think you were talking about hole number 17, which has got that street right next to it. The photo opportunity there is amazing. And golfers, uh, non-golfers who are standing around and getting doinked by golf balls, they have great stories. <laughs> so don't worry about it. And if they rent a car and it's got a golf ball through it, it's not your problem. Well, it should be. Anyway, uh, it, the most spectacular view of the Golden Gate Bridge you'll see from anywhere along the northern coast of San Francisco. So of all the public courses in San Francisco, they're all run by the city. And I'm not a huge fan of Lincoln Park or the Presidio, but Harding Park, ah, that's a gem. I love that place. And yes, please, next time you come to the Bay Area and want to play 18, this is truly a sincere invitation to any of our golf martyrs to please contact me and let's try to coordinate our schedules. When I return from my vacation, I got a couple of rounds booked with listeners and I'm really excited to meet and play with them. And I want you to do that too. Wow, what a concept. I never thought of it before, but if you have any questions for me, call our toll-free Golf Smarter Academy line. Or, of course, for our experts, which is a much better way to use it. 415-761-1498 and just leave your message. Not only will you get an answer on the podcast, you'll also receive a free copy of Tony Manzoni's DVD, The Lost Fundamental. You'll get a Golf Smarter Academy diploma and one of our new Golf Smarter Ball Markers, which you can also purchase for two bucks. Just if you want some, just let me know. Send me an email. Uh, for all the information on our Golf Smarter Academy, go to golfsmarter.com slash academy. And if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, Use at GolfSmarter on Twitter or Instagram. Call 415-761-1498 or click on the Hey Fred button at GolfSmarter.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all.